I'm not a destroyer of companies. I'm a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. You know what that is, Joey? Wall Street. That is good old Michael Douglas says Gordon Gecko and Wall Street. Kudos, my friend. Oliver Stone's a classic film right there from the 80s, which I think we'll be getting into here shortly. Welcome to the Average Joe's Movie Club cast. This is Justin. And I'm Joey. And tonight, our movie club pick is director Clint Eastwood's 2011 film, Jay Egger. And the challenge movie for this week is Toshia Fujita's 1973 film, Lady Snowblood. And if you want to be a part of the movie club, make sure to hit that subscribe button. Just a heads up, we do discuss our full thoughts on films. So if you're not seeing one, just skip forward a little bit to avoid any spoilers. So, Joey, how's life? I mean, life's been pretty good, man. Just, uh... I'm on vacation right now, so I've been watching a lot of movies, playing some video games, just just enjoying not going to work. Okay, how long do you have off? Like a whole week? Uh, yeah, actually, I have, uh, my seven days for vacation, and then uh, I start next week, actually, uh, on Sunday being off, so I actually have eight days off. Oh, sweet. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I have kind of the opposite of that. Um, so school for my kids started this week. So I'm having to get up at like 6.15, 6.30 in the morning to go drop them off at school. And then they're involved with all these activities. We got uh, Nolan's and my oldest son's in uh, fall ball, which is uh, pretty good. He has a pretty good coach. Parks him three, three days a week on that. Uh, they just started gymnastics, which my middle son, he's like this beanpole kid that loves to climb all over everything. So he's having a blast in gymnastics. And then we just had our uh, Cub Scout kickoff tonight. So, uh, busy, 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 and I'm turning 34 coming up on Sunday, the August 25th, whatever day that is. So, yeah, crazy time of year for me. Well, uh, happy, happy early birthday. Uh, Thanks, sir. And I got, I'm gonna have to get down there and uh, one, one of these years and uh, celebrate that, man. It's been a, it's been a long time since we've seen each other, and that would be, it'd be something yeah. good. Shoot, I'm trying to think. I know we kind of hung out a couple years ago during like bowl season, like whenever you had an apartment down in Charleston. Um, and shoot, the plan was to kind of like live together. Uh, I think you were going to try to go back to school and just didn't work out. So, Well, I, you're talking about when I lived in Charleston a few years ago. That was, you're talking about when, when I was living with my girlfriend at the time? What? When I lived in... Well, the plan, like, I was abroad, and, like, you were looking at, like, getting a, um, living at a university place, 
and we were thinking about like all moving in together, but it just kind of the plan fell through. I think when you guys broke up. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I was uh, <laughs> a few years ago. Put that in perspective. That was thirteen years ago now. <laughs> Time flies, <laughs> doesn't and, it though? Yeah, shoot. I just uh, I mentioned. I think I mentioned on the show last week. Uh, I just had my eleventh wedding anniversary. So that that really shows you kind of getting old, but um. Yeah, I guess with age comes experience. All right, so um, moving right along, what are some of uh, the highlights from your movie watching? Um, you know, other than our main uh, feature uh, movies this week. Um, I finished out the Lone Wolf and Cub series. Um, so that would have been Lone Wolf and Cub, Baby Card in the Land of Demons, Lone Wolf and Cub, White Heaven in Hell. So the fifth one, which was Baby Card in the Land of Demons, went back to the original director and it was definitely a step up from the fourth movie um and then white heaven in hell which was the sixth one was very interesting it took a uh took a very interesting turn and they introduced some new new facets to the franchise that had not been introduced before it also uh so they introduced i don't want to say zombies but zombies <laughs> um I don't want to say that they were zombies because they were living, but they were definitely raised from the dead, but they had been buried alive, but weren't dead. It was weird. And then it had a lot of a James Bond feel because there was a lot of dudes uh, skiing on like skiing and fighting on skis. It was, it was weird. And then the big build that you had for six movies, the, the, the bad guy, uh, didn't die and it was definitely set up to have another movie that they just never made hmm. so I also watched another movie that uh, I had been looking forward to for a long time um, which and was how, Lone Wolf and how long are these Lone Wolf and Cub movies they're all about like an hour and a half or so a piece okay and how many of them are there there are six plus um, in the extra credits in the on the box set is Shogun Assassin which is the first two spliced together and dubbed over for American release, which, of course, Shogun Assassin is referenced a lot in um, Wu-Tang's music and also is referenced in Kill Bill 2, mm-hmm. so, which is and how I, I was first, first turned on to it. And so I know you and your uh, roommate are really into a lot of these samurai flicks, so it was like the whole Zatoichi thing on the horizon for you? Yes, because he, he bought the box set, Okay. Um, during the during the um, during the most recent Criterion sale, so that's that is on the horizon um, eventually. And oddly enough, I do. Uh, we'll probably be talking. Um, one of my talking points later on is, is to mention Zaytuichi during something. So that's a thing. Um, okay. Yeah, and, and Lone Wolf and Cub also, you know, is a was definitely some inspiration for for Mr. Tarantino. So. Um, okay. So, what would you say your high point of this whole like samurai um, exploration has been? I mean, that's really hard. I mean, probably honestly, the best movie was Seven Samurai, which I mean, I watched last year, and you know, it was just one of the best movies of all time. Yeah. But more of these of these style samurai movies is, is probably Snowblood. I think Snowblood is is really good. 
And like obviously, as it's a humongous influence on Kill Bill, which is my favorite movie, like that probably is not very shocking. Um, but gotcha. I mean, the Lone, the Lone Wolf and Cub series is really good, and anybody who likes samurai movies and it does have some, they do have some exploitation feels to them as well. Um, I mean, it's seven movies for a hundred bucks, or if you know you hit the Criterion sale, it's seven movies for fifty bucks. I mean, that's really good. Like good mm-hmm. pricing, the amount of movies is definitely worth it. Um, so, and then another one that I watched uh, to keep up with the same name style theme is Lone Wolf McQuaid, um, which has nothing to do with those. It's from the '80s, uh, starring uh, Chuck Norris. I'm going against David Carradine. Um, so it's a very, very 80s. Uh, I think in my review I said something that's like one of the most 80s movies ever. And uh, you see at one point uh, Chuck Norris gets buried in his Dodge Ram Charger by David Carradine. And he hits like a switch in it and it's like a supercharger and he just drives out of the grave. And it was, it was just glorious. I mean, and then... It builds them, builds up to them fighting each other, and the fight scene at the end doesn't disappoint because I mean it's those two guys with martial arts. So uh, it was, it's pretty good. I watched some really trashy movies. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about those. They were really bad. Other than I watched a movie called um, Christmas Twister, which on Letterbox it's listed as F6 Twister because I guess you know around the rest of the world you know you don't necessarily celebrate Christmas. Um, but on the title screen they misspelled the word Christmas. It was Chris Tam's Christmas, and uh, that was pretty hilarious. But uh, the movie itself was was pretty bad. Um, huh. So that's that's pretty much what I've been watching. Oh, very cool. All right, uh, let me get to uh, some of my highlights. Watched a bunch of movies, but just talk about a few. Um, one of the more recent ones I watched, I saw uh, this lock this slocky kind of um, superhero. Um, horror combination the toxic avenger this is uh brought to you by trauma studios or entertainment which um i hadn't seen any of their stuff before i follow another show where um they recommend a lot of these kinds of movies and geez the toxic avenger like going into it i thought it was gonna be a lot more mainstream because i actually remember seeing a um, nes game for the toxic avenger back in the day and geez how do i even start with this movie so it's like super 80s like it starts off like going into a gym and you see all these people working out and all this spandex you know getting all into their you know working out and stuff and like the bad or like the antagonists in the movie are these like these jerk teenagers and they're just like totally psychotic like they're like they start off by like driving around playing this game it's like oh we're gonna have to like run down like a minority person or a child or something and they end up like hitting this kid on a bike and then like backing up and smashing his head and that's like for being like this schlocky um kind of horror movie i thought the special effects were like really good like um like the point where like the guy actually does turn into the toxic avenger because he's this really really dopey guy and um, he ends up falling in like this vat of like toxic waste and like transforming and actually the transformation it was almost like as good as the um, the American Werewolf in London transformation which I actually just saw for the first time last year or earlier this year I forget but um, yeah so there was actually a lot of money behind this um, kind of a silly um, 
horror slash superhero movie, uh, like I had mentioned. Um, yeah, it really kind of plays up the horror aspect because you kind of see this guy, like, after he transforms, like, he has this real deep voice and he's no longer this putsy guy and, you know, he's a serious crime fighter. But, like, they kind of shoot it in a way where, like, he's, like, this mysterious creature. Um, so I had a, a lot of fun with this. It was, um, you know, I would surprisingly probably give it, like, four stars. Um I thought it was an excellent time. I mean, it's it's a silly good time, but um, I mean, definitely definitely entertaining. Um, on Saturday night, um, so have you ever seen a John Waters film, uh, Joey? I can't say that I have. I mean, maybe and just don't know it. Um, I can't say that I'm familiar with that uh with that name off the top of my head. Okay, he's a pretty notorious filmmaker. You might have heard of uh, a movie, one of his most um cringy movies of all time uh pink flamingos but essentially he came out with these movies i think probably in the 70s um all starring this drag queen um named divine and so i had seen pink flamingos and <laughs> john waters he's something else i mean it's all it's like basically like trash cinema like he comes up like with the most putrid things imaginable to see but you know it's so crazy it's funny and you almost like feel nauseated kind of watching it and so um uh female trouble is on the criterion collection and it was on the criterion channel and i was needing something kind of short to watch after i had watched this like two hour actually two and a half hour like german um world war ii movie uh called mefesto which is on uh robert ebert roger ebert's list um so I checked that out finally, but I want to actually get to female trouble because, um, geez, how do I even, um, what, what do you see in a John Waters film? Like a lot of the, the highlights for me for John Waters, I kind of, kind of comes up in like, from what you see in Pink Flamingos, like, um, for instance, the end of Pink Flamingos ends with like this character just walking behind a dog and all of a sudden eating dog shit. And you're like, it's just so nauseating to look at and um there's so much crazy stuff in these movies and i'm almost like blanking on this one in particular but okay so you have this like big guy who is the divine character and they go on and on about how like glamorous she is but you know it's kind of it's kind of this whole like contrast juxtaposition thing because you know she's actually you know this hideous looking uh drag queen and um yeah she's just flopping around i mean just to kind of give you a taste of what this i mean these movies are all like rated nc-17 and like early on in the movie like she just like decides she's gonna have sex with this guy so she gets out of this car and it's like hey big boy you want to have sex and it's actually like the male version of her so it's like the same actor having sex with themselves like one as a drag queen one as this dude on the side of the road and i mean that just gives you a little taste of how wacky this stuff is and um yeah this is I mean, you might have heard of, like, films called, like, Salo that's, like, kind of showing this kind of disgusting stuff and, like, the most, like, depraved, most depraved things possible. And um, this is, like, the goofy version of that. So it's very, it's very strange to see stuff like this in this acclaimed film collection. But it's there, and and at times it's, it's interesting, amusing, but also nauseating. <laughs> so one of these days we'll have to chalk out some uh, John Waters. Um, while I was on vacation um, in the hotel room, I also checked out something else on the Criterion channel. Um, I had been meaning to watch A Night to Remember for the longest time. 
and this is actually like the original like acclaimed Titanic movie and so this one it's not nearly as long as James Cameron's movie but essentially this I mean you watch this and it's like basically a a blueprint for um, James Cameron's uh, Titanic movie there's like so many of like the plot beats like throughout for instance like just like how the you know how the iceberg hits the boat and like people are on deck like playing with the ice and like the uh the lower class citizens get like locked down in the depth or uh, like within the ship and they won't like let them out and you know i mean it it's a historical film so of course it's going to cover like the timeline of these things but at the same time it felt so much like the James Cameron version, um, you know, just kind of a different take on it. Um, I mean, obviously it doesn't have um, Kate and Leo in it. Yeah, Night to Remember, definitely worth checking out if you're into the whole Titanic story and uh, want to see like a um, a different version um, compared to the James Cameron's a little, a little shorter. Um, I don't remember James Cameron's having as much focus on like the stupidity that was going on like around the ship like there's actually there's a part that depicts how like there's a ship like just several um like just just miles away but like they had their like radio comm stuff like off and they were just kind of sleeping so they had no idea that uh the titanic is, was sinking and they could have helped them so yeah that was a really good flick uh, i definitely recommend checking that out i think that's like spine number seven in the criterion collection so I uh, got to the movie theater uh, this past weekend to take my kids to go see Angry Birds 2. And I didn't have any expectations, and it far underwent any expectations. I hated this movie. Um, so for me, like, watch The Simpsons and Family Guy. And I always enjoyed The Simpsons more because it seemed like it kind of had, like, it was going for like this one like kind of theme throughout the whole show and it was funny and it was like kind of hammering on that where family guy is just so random like i always had trouble getting into that show and it kind of seemed like angry birds 2 was kind of aiming at that same kind of random humor where it would just kind of go off and like show these things and be like that's funny right and it totally wasn't funny um it was just so random and then it actually had a great soundtrack. You'd hear all these like fantastic songs, but it was really just to um, distract you the fact from the fact that you're watching this this awful movie. Um, so, and I actually enjoyed the first one. You know, decent. I mean, it was it was pretty funny. It had some interesting character stuff with him actually having like anger issues, and then it actually kind of playing into the video game at the end or the mobile game. Um, but actually, I wouldn't have brought this up unless there's actually a highlight here. And it's the fact that there was this like five minute short film like ahead of Angry Birds called Hair Love, which is was actually a really, really good short. It's about this um, this African-American family and it kind of had some like My Neighbor Totoro vibes to it. I don't want to spoil it too much. I mean, it's only a five minute short, but essentially it's about like this relationship with a daughter and her father and like her mom's not in the picture and like she's trying to like style her hair this certain way and like the animation is like this kind of scratchy look to it so like it really like bolds well for like this hair being depicted as like this force of nature that's gonna like if you you gotta kind of wrestle it to get it in place kind of deal and so that was a really cute short and they actually used technology in a fun way to where like the girl actually had this like tablet 
that had like all these different videos of her mom styling her hair in different ways. And so the objective was for her and her dad to like do it the same way. And, you know, they were not able to do it as easily as mom was. Um, so that was a really cute short that um, I enjoyed a lot more than Angry Birds. And I didn't have to, and I only sat there and watched that for five minutes. And Angry Birds went on for a prolonged, prolonged like, I think it was at least an hour and 40. I don't know why, but do not oh, recommend Lord. do not recommend paying money to see Angry Birds too. Save yourself from that. Yeah, I gave that I gave that bad boy easily one star on uh, Letterbox. It's not I'm very disappointed with that. I guess I was disappointed with spending money to see it, thirty bucks or whatever. The theater it's not worth my time there. Um, I finally got around to seeing a movie. Um, like several years ago, I had turned uh, Woody Allen's um, Manhattan on on Netflix, and I just kind of watched the first few minutes of it. And I think I was watching with my girlfriend at the time, and um, you know, she just wasn't in um, like in the mood for this. Like we had watched some like later Woody Allen movies that we've enjoyed together, like Match Point, and just for some reason it was. You know, she wasn't digging it, so we just turned it off, and I had never gotten back to it. And I always heard this was like one of his like most famous films. It came like right after Annie Hall, and I had wrote in my letterbox review. It's like if you want to know like a Woody Allen film, I mean, it's it's so formulaic. You have like this this uh, neurotic um, guy talking about like life and philosophy, and there's all these like fickle relationships going on. And it's all like within the backdrop of like this gorgeously shot city, which is um, obviously New York in this case. Um, you'll see basically the same kind of thing if you watch the, his one of his later movies, um, Midnight in Paris, starring um, Owen Wilson is kind of his character in that. And so, yeah, I just wanted to mention it. Um, I really enjoy when I'm in, in the right mood. I really enjoy Woody Allen movies. I mean, you can just kind of sit down and. Um, cozy up to a, bl in a blanket and just hear this this guy just have all this strange um, neurotic dialogue and it's it's pretty amusing um, and so it's kind of interesting to see in some of his other films like he did a movie called Crimes and Misdemeanors which has this like strange neurotic character but it's also like woven into this more serious like murder drama thing so he had some interesting takes on it but I would say Manhattan is like the quintessential like what Woody Allen does and so if you ever want to try to get into his movies I would start with that one and see what you think have you seen any of his work um I've seen match point mm -hmm. um several years ago now um back when I was watching like I watched match point and like uh, scoop which I don't think is his work but it was uh I was watching like everything that had uh, Scarlett Johansson in it um so, I, I definitely enjoyed that. I think I've got Annie Hall on my Netflix queue, or at least because it was on there. Mm -hmm. I think it was. I think it was Netflix. So it's definitely one I want to see. I know that one's super famous. Um, and it, so he's a uh, one I'm intrigued to to watch. And so. um, yeah, Annie Annie Hall was the first movie I ever watched from him, and it's it's still I think my favorite. Just how much that gets into like what relationships are and there's a lot of like third uh, wall breaking in that one um, and that actually won uh, best picture for him I need to watch some of his earlier stuff I think he has some slapstick um, 
movies um, that came a little earlier on that I'm interested in seeing because he did start start as a start out as a comedian before he became you know this stylistic filmmaker. And speaking of stylistic filmmakers, my last movie I wanted to talk about was I finally saw I well I finally got the uh, the urge to see um, Steve McQueen's uh, first film Hunger. Now the reason I preface that is any Steve McQueen film is gonna be like it's gonna it's gonna be a gut punch. Um, the director is no holds barred in terms of like giving you the grimmest picture of humanity possible. I mean, just look at like Twelve Years a Slave or Shame. Um, those are the movies I've seen, and now I've seen Hunger. And the really interesting thing about McQueen is the fact that he contrasts this real grisly look at humanity with like these this beautiful um, cinematography, especially like Twelve Years a Slave. You'll see that. Um, so Hunger is about the Irish. Um, hunger strike in this prison because this leader of the IRA I guess he got his political status removed from Britain and so he was imprisoned and in protest they were basically like living or making things even worse for themselves in the prison like one of my favorite shots it's actually it shows you this picture of a wall and it's, there's this really beautiful like design of like swirls on it and you know it zooms up and you realize it's actually someone like took feces and was rubbing it on the wall and making it this this beautiful pattern so there you have like this disgusting like element in a film but it's done in like this beautiful way so it's a kind of an interesting um way to depict that kind of thing um now the thing that I didn't like as much about Hunger is just the historical context. It made it a little more difficult to get into this because you know you really don't get a, a solid picture of who this guy is and like what he means to the the IRA. It's really more just about like his view on life and why it's necessarily to do it. Like you'll see in a lot of Steve McQueen films, there's like there's these long, long, long extended shot sequences of things going on, and in this case, there's a famous shot of just him talking to this priest for like I don't even know how long it goes on. It, it it's at least like ten, maybe more minutes, but it's like halfway through, you're like, man, they are still talking, and it just feels so natural. So it's you know really props to the actors for being able to carry on a conversation that long within a film and it being all one take and it being you know feeling so natural so uh hunger is really good but definitely not my favorite steve mcqueen i would say this is a little bit down just because of the historical context makes it not as relatable as like i mean i've studied all kinds of like civil war history and um you know familiar with slavery in america so 12 years of slave was very relatable and then um well not personally me like living in that time period but i understand the context of the story and then shame is all about sex addiction and i mean um we're all human so we know what what that that's all about um not that level of it obviously i'm talking like <laughs> all these movies being like relatable but it's it's very like the darkest grisliest side of that but you can um i mean there's topics you can kind of keep um wrap your arms around all right so moving on, we got a little bit of listener feedback. Um, I had mentioned last week that our buddy Ben, he had sent us several questions. So we're just kind of chipping away at them each show. 
And this week we're going to tackle Ben's question about the 80s. He was going to ask us what our favorite 80s films were. And so uh, Joey and I compiled um, a top three list, uh, which is more than three movies, uh, as you'll kind of see how this plays out. Um, I guess I'll start. Uh, So my number three picked, I wanted to pick an 80s action movie. And so many, so many, so many to choose from. I mean, the next couple ones I'm going to say, like, are all like masterpieces in my mind. Uh, Die Hard, I could have said. I could have said Aliens, which is fantastic. But I'm going to go with Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, The Predator. Uh, Just such an uh, incredible, like, display of, like, 80s machoism and fantastic. I mean... John McTiernan, between this and Die Hard, like, the dude was just nailing it in the 80s in terms of action. I mean, this is, like, considered, like, one of the most iconic action movies of all time. And, I mean, it was such a gamble, like, having it be this, like, alien creature that's all on infrared. So, like, a lot of that aspect, it was um, kind of a risk-taking film. But it totally works. And, like, that end scene of Arnie, like, camouflaging himself in the mud and, like, doing almost like this home alone style like out in the woods like traps and stuff for the predator and it's it's very it's i mean it's taken completely seriously and fantastic action bill duke i um i rewatched the film earlier this year and um he is his role is so much more poignant in the movie than i had ever remembered and so uh, predator is my uh, first choice of incredible 80s movies what direction are you going in joey Okay. Oh, before we start that, a ago I, we were talking about Woody Allen, and I said I had seen Match Point, and then I also said I had watched Scoop, but that wasn't a Woody Allen. It's actually in fact a movie. So I wanted to buy that. Um. <clears throat> so, um. But back to the '80s films. So for the for the action movies, there was a bunch I could have mentioned. Um. I completely blank on Predator. That's a that's a good pick. Um. So in a completely little bit different direction. Um. My mentions. Um. I was thinking about doing Roadhouse. Um, I love that movie. We just grew up watching that all the time. And also, um, you're talking about machoism. There's a guy that just brings to my mind for late 80s, and that's Jean-Claude Van Damme um, with Kickboxer and Bloodsport. Um, I love both of those movies a lot. Um, I watched both a lot as a kid. But the quintessential 80s action film, also my favorite Christmas movie, Die Hard. Like, that's, that is the, the 80s action film. Um, I mean, it's, it's what you think of, like, when I think of Bruce Willis, even to this day, it's, it's he's John McClane. If I see someone's last name is McClane, it's, it's John McClane. That's, that, that's what it is. Um, I know everyone that's younger, they, they think of Alan Rickman as Snape. No. Sure. <laughs> no, he is, he's Hans Gruber. And the Sheriff of Nottingham. That's that's a nineties movie that um Is that Men in Tights? No, or... well Prince of Thieves. Okay. Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Um those are the two movies I know him from as a child, so I mean that's just I mean just ho ho ho, now I have a machine gun, uh Yippie Kaye. Um Yeah, I'm trying to keep it clean, we won't say the rest of that that, that very famous <laughs> line. Um if it wasn't but, for the the fact that the him falling off the Nakatomi building looks a little cheesy, I, it might be a perfect movie. That's the only slight glimmer of it, um, imperfection. Okay. But 
in the time when we were growing up watching that, that wasn't cheesy. It only looked cheesy now because everything looks so much better. Mm, all right. At least in my opinion. And I, I don't even think it looks that cheesy. I mean, when you think about everything else that happens in that movie, like you have a guy, like you then have him use a fire hydrant hose to swing. You have a guy hung by a chain who lives. Like, I mean, all of that stuff, like, is so crazy. But, I mean, it's action movie. So, I mean, it's, that movie yeah. is just great. So, yeah. that's quintessential 80s, 80s action movie. Absolutely. All right. So, number two, I'm going to go with great films. And, wow, this is a spectrum. Um, I mean, I could have gone with, like, Akira Kurosawa's Ran, which, you know, I didn't watch back then, but I watched recently. And,. It's my favorite Kurosawa movie. Um, Empire Strikes Back is phenomenal. The Shining, my favorite um, horror movie slash like an amazing Stanley Kubrick movie. Raiders of the Last Ark, like define my childhood. But I'll go in terms of a great movie, won the Oscar that year. Um, Amadeus, um, the historical biopic of um, you know Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and it just brings chills to my like to me like thinking of this film i really really love movies that show an artist in their element creating and this movie has the quintessential scene of that taking place where you have his like rival in the movie and he's like on his deathbed like composing his own funeral march and like his rival is like trying to keep up with him as he's composing this music for him as they're singing it together in the back and forth it is just one of the most remarkable pieces of cinema I've ever seen and just an amazing film Amadeus you gotta see it you seen that one I have not seen that one actually um okay the one we, we were we were talking about being because uh, completely by accident um we did when I did my 1000 movie it was in the 50s my 1100th movie was in the 60s and my 1200th movie was in the 70s so now my 1300th movie has to be in the 80s my 1400th movie will have to be in the 90s so that was one that was tossed around as being my 1300th movie um because i have not seen it okay um so and oddly enough another movie you've mentioned in this conversation is one that is being tossed around for my 1300th because of what my 1200th movie was Oh, goodness, um, you're getting very down in the weeds on how you're picking your movies and where. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's when, when I, when, when, the, I don't want to say addiction because that has such a negative connotation to it, but, you know, I did, I did Alien at 1200 and I had, I had not seen any of the franchise other than Prometheus and Aliens or AVP before. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, to me, it only makes sense to see Aliens at 1300, other than that's a long break in between movies. Don't do so. it. Don't do that to yourself. <laughs> you gotta watch Aliens now. <laughs> I can't. I mean, I Get away like from I, her, you bitch. Now. <laughs> Alright. So, we're doing, we're doing best movie or favorite movie from the 80s. Um, yeah, just however, whatever direction. These are just kind of the framework I went with. All right. So there were a couple that, um, even while we were just talking about it, I had to, to kind of add this because I had forgotten about it. So there was The Terminator. Um, sure. Just, yeah. And then The Thing, um, which I actually, mm-hmm. I, 
didn't see the thing until like two years ago and I loved it. It was great. And um, how can you talk about the eighties about empire? I mean, I think professionally for both of us and most people around our age, that's, that's their childhood. That's, you know, especially if you're into quote nerd fantasy, like I'm, I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick Batman um, from 1989. That was the first movie I ever owned. Um, I had it on VHS. It had my mom's writing in cursive. It was the first word in cursive I could ever read when I was five years old before I could even read in print. Um, I could read my name in cursive written on that VHS cassette. Um, I remember taking it to like daycare. Um, like I probably shouldn't have been watching that version of Batman at five years old, but um, six years old. But I mean, I've seen that movie so, so many times. And I came across the 20th anniversary uh, digipack of it not that long ago. I had a second Charles. It was still brand new. Um, like I couldn't pass it up. Um, and of course, like 10 minutes after I bought it, I got the notification from Zavi that there's a 30th anniversary steelbook. Um, but so um, that's just, I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. So it's just. Batman, it's 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 so good. Been a long time since I've seen it, but I had a VHS copy as a kid, watched it many a times. Uh, so yeah, definitely relate with you there. I remember being a kid and um, when uh, the, the sequel came out, Batman Returns, and I was into like the toys at uh, McDonald's. I think I saw it in the theater, and um, much different than the first one. Um, but yeah, the the first one's that's great movie there. All right, and so my last category is basically uh, movies that define the 80s for me. And, I mean, a lot of com- – um, so uh, I had to put Ghostbusters in here somewhere. Ghostbusters is near and dear to me. Um, the Breakfast Club definitely qualifies as that quintessential 80s. But for me, in my childhood, it, it the, the Goonies is where it's at for me. I saw that so many times as a kid growing up, and I still watch it. It's so cheesy, but um, – like the whole spirit of it being like going on this treasure hunt against pirates and these characters and it's it like i said it's cheesy especially watching as an adult you're down here we're we're up there and (laughs) it's goofy but um the goonies uh, can't can't go wrong with me all right so i got a couple um so lost boys stand by me Back to the Future 2, all um, kind of honorable mentions there. But uh, the 80s to me, you kind of touched on this. It's, I'm just going to say John Hughes. Um, just okay. kind of an over overarching of you know, Breakfast Club, Weird Science, mm-hmm. uh, 16 Candles. He had a few more. But like to, to the point of, like, it's just, it's, just, it's just the 80s. Like, I mean... Back, back when soundtracks had such a, an impact on movies, like that, not that they don't have an impact on movies, they had an impact on culture. Like, Don't You Forget About Me was like one of the, like a humongous hit in the 80s, and that came from The Breakfast Club to the point of yeah. Don't Forget About Me was a major plot point in Pitch Perfect. I mean, it was a humongous movie like six, seven years ago. They made a trilogy of those movies. Kevin Smith, it was a huge plot point in Dogma. I mean, like... That's a, a director from you know our time, and John Hughes was a huge influence on him. So I mean, that's just that's a side point, but like like he's like the '80s director. Like when I think of '80s directors, like John Hughes. So okay. like I just had had to throw that in there. Yeah, I still need to see a few of those movies. Like 
I think I've seen most of Ferris Bueller's Day Out. I've never seen Pretty in Pink or Sixteen Candles. Obviously, I've seen The Breakfast Club. So probably have a little catching up to do in that department. Um, it's all his 90s movies for the most part, I think. I mean, Home Alone's a classic, and then he kind of started um, not doing as, as great a work after that. But Well, he only directed eight movies. Like, I looked at it earlier today. Like, he'd only directed, like, eight movies. He's written, like, a gazillion movies, like all the Home Alones and that kind of stuff. But it was only, like eight movies that he actually had directed but then he writ, written and produced a, a gazillion alright very cool alright moving along with our show let's get into our movie club pick of the week and it is uh, Jay Edgar from 2011 this is a biopic about the career and professor, uh, personal life of the first director of the FBI J. Edgar Hoover who served in that uh, position for nearly 50 years uh, the film stars uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Arm Hammer, Naomi Watts, and Judy Dench, and lots and lots and lots of makeup. So, uh, Joey, what led this uh, film to end up on your movie club list? Um, well, I love history. Like, it was my favorite subject in school. Um, I love Leo DiCaprio. He's a phenomenal actor who probably deserves to have more than the one best actor credit to his um to his repertoire um yeah. and it seemed really good and then you know when i was looking through stuff and i saw eastwood was the director i was like this this is going to be a bang up movie so that's that's why i put it on the list okay definitely uh fell under the radar for me um in terms of when it came out i, I don't think i was watching as many movies then but um all right let's get into it so this was one of the more interesting movies we had see that i had seen so far in our movie club because it kind of started off and it felt for me I was not really digging it at all it kind of felt like this like color by numbers of biopic of this guy that I didn't really know much about to begin with and the film wasn't really giving me anything to really go off of a really liking him the cinematography was like super dark and kind of drab looking which was kind of like well this isn't putting me in a very good mood um it's kind of strange like i saw lincoln just a few weeks ago and lincoln had a similar kind of palette of being kind of gray and dark but it really works in that movie for some reason uh so much more like the blacks like really kind of stand out um but yeah, in Jay Edgar, it was shot in this similar, like, um, really dark style, and it just wasn't doing it for me. Um, so we hear a lot of interesting things about um, Hoover along the way. Like, that's probably one of the most interesting things about the film, the fact that, like, he was involved with, like, this catalog system at, like, the Library of Congress that they, they mention. Um, he, like, shaped whole structure of what the, what the FBI would come and the powers they would have of, like, judicial law. Um, and also an early proponent of like fingerprints to track criminals. And so going, like I had mentioned, like I just wasn't digging this film. And then kind of towards the end, it finally clicked to where this, I kind of was getting how this was kind of like a modern fable of how this guy presented himself. There's this great scene late in the movie where this guy's like, well, Edgar, I mean, you say you arrested this guy, but it wasn't really you. And you say you were here, but you really weren't. And so it kind of more or less paints this picture of how, like like I had mentioned, this is like a modern fable of this guy who, like, is known for all this stuff. But, you know, maybe he inserted himself a little bit more than, like, he was actually uh, should have been. 
So I found that really interesting. Um, but so many other flaws. Um, so this one is pretty divisive for me. Um, what, what are some of your early thoughts on it? Well, the movie literally started with a bang, which I was not expecting. It just started with an explosion, like right off the gun. And then it just, it, well, I guess was supposed to grab your attention and it kind of, it kind of slowed down. Um, I really liked it, you know, at the beginning there was, uh, you know, cause it jumped back and forth. It jumped back and forth from the sixties. Cause you know, he was telling the story, he was telling the biopic, um, which kind of gave me, you know, I made the reference, you know, it's, it's interview with a vampire just without the vampire and Christian Slater and Brad Pitt. Um, yeah, I can see that. But I like all of the history stuff. Um, you know, all, all the back and forth where they're, they're fighting the Bolsheviks and they're, you know, fighting the commies and then, you know, then he's fighting the mobsters and, you know, this, that, and the other, all, all, all of that stuff. That was really good. But then, you know, like, it, it really bogged down when, when they got to the Lindbergh baby and they spent a lot of time on that, which rightfully so that was a big deal in American history. That was, you know, Lindbergh was a world renowned, world famous superstar at that point. That would be like akin to basically when Michael Jordan's father was kidnapped or like LeBron's kid getting kidnapped or, you know, something of that, you know, a, a big world superstar, mm-hmm. you know, at, at the time and they spent a lot of time on that but then the thing that irked me was they just skipped world war ii they skipped the 50s there was there was nothing there like they they also just kind of skipped you know they mentioned the gangsters and that he you know he fought machine gun kelly and that he fought these other gangsters and mm-hmm. him they being the fbi but it didn't really show how they did it not having guns you know, up until they spent that time at the Lindbergh baby, and that's when you know they they showed how they were able to get um, the gun, or you know, sorry, that was where they were able to get chain of evidence, and they were able to get um, the Lindbergh law passed, and that's how um, kidnapping became a federal crime. Right, and that was that was, but it just. I don't know. The movie it spent a lot of time wanting to show just how how part of the movie's not enough time showing how authoritative and how feared J. Edgar was by doing this stuff because I felt like they were trying to show he's doing this stuff from up top and people are looking down and he has this power and he's authoritative. And then it spent a lot of time trying to show that he's this old old man reflecting on his life and his revered work and. Mm-hmm we should be sympathetic to him like trying to bait emotions or bait an award maybe and I feel like it had just went for the straight this man is a feared badass because I mean he was he was feared by everybody because he had secrets and knowledge on everybody which is why Nixon was like yo screw this guy which thing and what they showed at the end um you know with Watergate and all that um I just felt it was very disjointed. Like it was almost two different things that they tried to, you know, it was the same character, two different ways that they tried to show together. Um, 
Right. I thought it was interesting how, like, I agree that they didn't show near the enough gangster stuff. Like, it was interesting how, like, they showed him, like, in, like, this public service announcement about, you know, fighting against the public enemy. But then everyone's like, boo, boo, get off the screen. And then it went, like, went over to a movie about gangsters and everybody was cheering. So I thought that was an interesting... um so let's. I want to get into the acting a little bit. I agree with a lot of those points, and I'll get in, back into it in just a minute. Um, I thought DiCaprio's performance was is fantastic, um, but the biggest drawback for me was this old person makeup. Like at times it looked okay, but it's almost like they they came into it thinking like, oh wow, this this makeup looks incredible. Let's just show this as much as possible. Where like if I was making a film like this, I would like not make that so obvious so it wasn't so notable noticeable but it was like so in the forefront of everything they were doing they would have these transitions to where him and his assistant director were walking around and then all of a sudden they get out of an elevator and all of a sudden they're old and it just brought so much attention to itself and i mean i guess it they i guess they thought it looked good but i thought i'd i thought it looked pretty horrid in most situations and it really stood out like a sore thumb I mean, he looked like a big sore thumb, to be honest. Um, his acting, like, so I thought it was good, but at the same time, like, I'm so unfamiliar with his character that a lot of times, like, he, like, towards the end of the movie, he kind of felt like he was Nixon, and then, like, in the middle of the movie, he kind of felt like he was Kennedy, and he just felt like this amb ambiguous figure that you could never really nail down and figure out exactly who he was. I don't think the movie was going for that. I just think it was just unevenness with, um, like you were saying, it was kind of messy with how much it jumps back and forth. Um, I think that brings me to Judy Dench. I thought she was really out of place in this. Like, it almost felt like she was in there just to make it more Oscar Beatty. Um, I mean, she had that good scene where, like, she's, like, kind of shaming him and making it so he, like, wants to stay in the closet and not act like a sissy boy or whatever, like they would think about in those days. But, I mean, I actually did watch this one interesting review where they actually kind of hinted that she might have been, like, his Lady Macbeth kind of um, figure, which is kind of an interesting thought. But for the most part, I just thought... I mean, I didn't see, like, this guy's mother. I just saw Judy Dench there being kind of, like, snarky. And so that didn't work for me as well. Yeah, so Leo Carey, this movie, he pulled this movie on his back. Like, he probably had to go to the hospital, have some back surgery when this movie was finished. He carried this movie. Any Anybody <laughs> else in this in this role, like, the, the only other person... um that I could have seen from this time period and, and shit, I forgot his name. He played Capote. Um, oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. He's probably the only other person that I could have seen probably like playing this role. So mm -hmm. the makeup, like the first scene they showed him in the makeup, I literally like sat back and kind of cringed cause it was, it was, it was so noticeable. Now mm -hmm. maybe in 2011 that passed as good. I, I don't know. That was, it was atrocious. Um, there were a couple scenes where it didn't look as bad, but like, yeah, it, it wasn't that it just made him look old. It was because they tried, they, they did. I, I don't know if it was just prosthetics too to make him to make him look fat. Um, yeah, but it was, yeah, it's a it was lumpy. not. Yeah, it, it was not very good. Um, but you know, he Leo does what Leo does, and he carried he carried the movie. Like I didn't, he, he overshadowed everybody. I didn't even notice that. Um, 
his secretary, his head secretary was Naomi Watts until the credits rolled. I, oh, okay. you know, yeah, and like she, I mean, not that she was bad, I just didn't even notice that it was her. And then you put, you know, you put the Lone Ranger and Army Hammer, or Hammer, <laughs> as, as is, is, you know, the person, you know, his love interest and, you know, his assistant director up against it. I mean, you know, we also did fine. There's like, you know, the, the main other person with the name is, you know, Dame Judy Dench, and, you know, she's great, but like you said, you thought it was Judy Dench the whole time. I'm just like, I kept waiting for Daniel Craig to show the hell up. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, that that's what I was waiting for. And, you know, I was just like, you know, I just kept going, why, why is him being such a bitch to, to Leo? Like, like it just mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. And, um, it was just, I, uh, I think it did tackle the whole, like, like, I guess I'm not, I'm, like, you could probably go in a history book and really comb through and, you know, identify, you know, where they, you know, emphasize different points of history really well. And like, I don't know how obvious, like, so I guess it's, 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 it's known like his, uh, his homosexuality and they definitely, um, that was a major emphasis in the film that was done well. Um, and I guess that was one of the strengths of it back jumping like way in time is like, you see these guys, you know, in a relationship and then it jumps in the, the future and it shows them how they've aged together, which was fine. Um, I, I thought that was all done really well, um, but I don't know what else to say about it. I have no problem with him showing any any part of his homosexuality because that's that's part of who he was. That's a well known fact. But okay. like when I'm coming to watch a movie about J. Edgar Hoover, like I want to see like all of this fear that he struck among politicians, among criminals, among like. Like I want to see this big imposing figure, whether it's big literally or or figuratively. Like that's I want to see the historical and the the fear and stuff that he struck in people. And like, and maybe that was part of the problem because I guess I was expecting to see something in the movie and I didn't see that to a certain degree because you know he went in and and in some parts they did show it because you know there were scenes there were some scenes where he would come in and yeah, he would that- talk. For instance, that hallway scene, like up at the beginning, whenever he's like choosing his men, and he like highlights that one guy is definitely not gonna, you know, stay on his force. That was definitely that imp- that, that imposing presence um, that you mentioned there. And uh, hopefully, I didn't seem like the, the the homosexual elements elements like turned me off to the movie. I think that was done well, and definitely a point of emphasis that people have been mad if it wasn't there. Um, but yeah, I agree that you know maybe too much focus on the personal life should have been more on like the historical relevance even though it does touch on that but maybe not more of like things that happen instead of who the guy was i know i think that's a it's it's a hard place to balance because like like you said if you leave it out people are mad Mm -hmm. and then if you focus on it not enough people are mad and you focus on it too it's it's kind of that hard way to, to balance and the movie was already two and a half hours um, yeah, it definitely. Um, I remember it being like about an hour in, and I checked the runtime. Like, there's a whole other hour of this. What What else do they possibly have to say? And in that last hour, it went by pretty quick. Um, but Judd, just to speak off of that point you just made, like like Bohemian Rhapsody came out last year, and people just went on and on about how much they were upset about like the depiction of Freddie Mercury's homosexuality. So I feel like the wide range of like people watching these movies and like what um you know how people are nowadays i mean no one's going to be happy with how these things are depicted 
So you just gotta do your best and sometimes it's gonna work, sometimes it's not for you. Pretty much. Um, I mean, yeah, it's just, and yeah, pretty much. There were like, maybe. It's kind of hard for two straight guys to comment on what homosexual relationships in a movie, but, um, you know, just gotta take it how we see it. I mean, yeah, like, I thought that, you know, they did a, I thought they did a good job of, like, showing, like, you know, the, to the best of my understanding, how that relationship would have been during those times. I mean, they even went away, yeah. you know, on, on a trip, and, you know, that's when they got in a fight, and, you know, you know because, you know, J. Edgar was going to get married, and uh, he was like, hey, if you do this, you're never going to, you know, you're never going to see me again or talk to me again, and, you know, they punched mm-hmm. each other, you know, an actual, you know, fight, you know, like in a relationship and such, you know. And, you know, they did a good job of, you know, humanizing him that way instead of him just being this guy that talks yeah. away and, and orates. Because that was that was one of the things they did well is he would go into the he would go into like the talk to Congress and he would orate very, very well mm-hmm. um, and, and say these big, these long sentences with these long and big words, and just great vocabulary and um, mm-hmm. would enunciate very well. Um, until he you know he was around um, until he was around girls or until the one time he got uh, yeah the absolutely kind of, with until the how pumping out with how insecure he seemed in his personal life and being able to not show who that part of him was but in his professional life being this total solid rock and I really enjoyed the scenes of like um, it showed it a couple times where he was like sitting outside I guess it was the Oval Office like getting ready to talk to the president and I think they mentioned like. He had um, served under like eight U.S. presidents or something, so um, that that whole routine that they uh, they looped in was um, enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, and it's just in you know the, the fact that you know, the little tidbit that they shared at the end was like even when he had died, um, you know some of his per- most of his personal files, other than the few that were misfiled, were never found. It is crazy. The man was super paranoid, especially at the end. He had files on everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really, and it paints him out to be like this, this definitely like a rule breaker, like willing to do anything it takes to like serve his agenda. And it was interesting how like towards the end, like they compare him against Nixon, and um, basically it, I kind of got the the feeling that's like you know he might have been doing like the, all this kind of like rule breaking stuff all along, but you know he's he's no Nixon. So, and I'm I'm a little ashamed to say this. Um, the jumping back and forth in history kind of threw me off with like with how conniving he was because there's this scene where he's like talking about like famous people and this is like the setup to the Lindbergh baby thing and I was there's some there's instances in this movie where he was like talking about stuff and it almost to me made it seem like he might have been like behind it in some way which may made in my mind made him see even more conniving but watching it back i mean it 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 really fell back into the whole like he's narrating like what's about to happen in his life and so that so i i guess to me as a general audience goer me being confused by how it's being set up like thinking he was more behind it um might be a flaw in the storytelling i don't know did I mean, did you ever get that instance? Like another another moment was like the bomb in the beginning. Like it it shows him like exiting this house and like leaving on a bicycle. And so for some reason in my mind, I, I thought he might have been like associated with the bombing. But I listened back to it and he says like clearly like, oh, the Bolsheviks were behind this. Um, did 
did you get any of that? Well, the, the scene at the beginning with the Bolsheviks is where he he was talking about how there was no no there was no evidence, there was no chain of evidence, like the, the officers were trampling through everything, and he mm-hmm. started picking up uh, like the pamphlets, and then when they busted the uh, they busted the, uh, uh, I guess it was a bomb making factory or something, they found a lot of the same things he had picked up at then, and that's how they tied the evidence together, and that's how we started mm-hmm. using like for evidence and stuff, and then I never picked up on the anything saying like to suggest that he did the um the Lindbergh case but it was definitely more when he was older like the conniving where he like tried to connive um oh like martin the martin, king, martin luther king yeah that's right mm-hmm. where he tried to connive him out of um accepting the um the nobel peace prize by you know right. orating orating that you know that written letter in which his speech and that was really good but it was just because he had said something super negative and he was like oh well he's a radical and it's like well stuff he is saying is radical but it's not radical like the bolsheviks or you know anything like that and Mm -hmm. with how hard he went against the bolsheviks and how hard he was going against martin luther it's like where where was this stuff against like the nazis or maybe maybe he was with the nazis or he had sympathies to him they didn't want to show that but i was like Hmm. where was this stuff in world war ii you know um you know where was all that stuff and then you know he had that scene where you know clearly he had the um the recordings of um kennedy kennedy Have, having an affair or something right having an affair with the russian spy right and or the german spy one of the two i guess russian and, and you know talking to talking to robert kennedy and you know the, the attorney general at the time and then you know he's shot and he just calls him and he's like, your brother's been shot or the president's been shot. And he doesn't, he just drops the phone and it's just this, but you, you, you know, you see the human side of it, but he, yeah, he connived so much and did all this stuff. But if a president or someone did it, he was like, oh no, that's against the rules. But he would bend the rules to make someone else uh-huh. stay the rules. And I thought that was very interesting. He's like, oh, there's rules in place. You must follow these rules. Uh-huh. But then he wouldn't do the rules. And it goes to show that, well, the president is limited to two terms. We got all these other people in Congress and the White House, yeah. not the White House, but Washington rather, that have all these different kinds of power because, like, mm-hmm. he was Supreme outside. justices. Yeah, et cetera. He answered to the attorney general and the attorney general only because, you know, they made sure to show that when he accepted the position. And he just did whatever the hell he wanted, whenever the hell he wanted to, basically, with no repute until Nixon. And then Nixon was like, yeah, I'm not playing ball with you, but, you know, that's because Nixon was crooked and knew that, yeah, Nixon was crooked and, and, and Nixon knew he was going to bust him. Yeah, I like how you mentioned the, the Bolsheviks because, like, I think we've talked about it on the show before, or like uh, a film flaw being to um, just talk about something and not actually show it. And that was definitely the case in that aspect. I mean, he does mention communism several times throughout, but you never really see any of that influence. I mean, obviously, like, if you think about it historically, like, I mean, the Vietnam War came a little bit later. um, But yeah, you really didn't. And I'm not sure if maybe that's smarter than what I think it is. And like, like them talking a lot about um, communism and not actually having as much of an effect as what they were hyping it up to be. I'm not sure if it, there, it was being clever there or if really the film is just, you know, really dropping the ball on the fact that they're not really showing what they're saying in terms of this communist threat. 
I mean, yeah, they they talked about him a lot, and you know, they showed him busting, you know, people who were who were Bolsheviks and stuff. Never really showed because you know communism became a threat. Uh, you know, World War Two, and then but you know when he he was dying, that's when the Bolsheviks were there. But they even said you know that wasn't a home threat anymore. That was a global threat. There wasn't internal. Yeah communist anymore it was you know external you know it's cold war but mm-hmm. still so they you know they did some stuff with this movie they did they, they did some stuff that was okay but like if the movie if leo hadn't been the main person in this movie like we probably i, I don't even know if we'd still be talking about this movie right now because like i said he carried this movie yeah, I can definitely um, seeing it being even more forgettable if Leo's incredible performance wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's a really good film, but it's flawed in a lot of ways. I mean, I definitely learned a lot about Hoover, and that's the ultimate point, and Leo's performance is great. But, man, that aging makeup and the story structure is, I think it's it's really flawed. So I only went with three and a half on this one. That's the same thing I gave it was three and a half. All right, now on to our challenge portion of the show. And last week, um, or last episode, I should say, Joey challenged me to watch Lady Snow, Lady Snowblood, which is a huge influence on his favorite film, Kill Bill, directed by Quentin Tarantino. And so I checked out Lady Snowblood from the Criterion Collection. So, so based on your recommendation, I actually watched last night um, Lady Snowblood. I had a night full of vengeance with. Uh, with that movie and Kill Bill back to back. So these two are definitely fresh in my mind. Um, I enjoyed Lady Snowblood. Let's see. So I really enjoyed like the action scenes in it, the violence, like all like the um, over the top, like cutting off limbs and blood spraying, like that. all that stuff is obviously great. Um, I'll be interested to hear what you say because for some reason, the middle of this film, like, I was a little lost in exactly, like, who was who and why things were happening. So I had a little bit of, there was, like, a slow portion in the middle of this film that I was a little lost. And then it kind of cranked up towards the end. Um, I was listening to some analysis a little earlier today on this one, and they were noting the fact that um, in Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill, like, all the vengeance is very... What's the word? Um, it's satisfying. Where in Lady Snowblood, it's unsatisfying. And they had pointed out the fact that, like, one of the people, like, she kills is like this degenerate gambler who has a prostitute daughter, and like she has sympathy for the daughter. Um, and so, like, at the same time, like Lady Snowblood, like she's definitely out to kill, and she's gonna get that job done. And she's even mad when she can't get that job done. Like in the scene where she's like facing off against this um this grave of like this guy who she wanted to track down and kill which i mean that gets a little bit more <laughs> intricate with as the story goes along so um all right some elements so all like the flashbacks that showed like the artwork of different things happening that was really cool and you can obviously see that was um might might have been the influence for um the anime sequence in a uh, kill bill um, I, I was talking to you earlier today about a scene that really stood out to me in terms of how the movies were similar and a line that really stood out to me was so in the anime sequence there's a part 
where the um, the Lucy Liu character is on top of her, um, I think, father's killer. And she says, you know, do you see something in my face? And the Lady Snowblood um, has that same line when she kills that guy on the beach, I believe. And so um, I thought that was a cool similarity. And there's all kinds of visual similarities. I mean, obviously, you have like the guys, uh, like the whole troop of people that vengeance is going to be sought on. Like you see an upwards um, view of all those characters in uh, both um, films. So I'm really glad I, I checked this out. And like I had no idea it was that like similar like I kind of imagined like the part like I'd seen Kill Bill before and I knew like the part like in the snow at the end would probably definitely have some tie-ins but yeah it's like all throughout like I was surprised how like they have this whole sequence where like this old master is training Lady Snowblood and she's in she's like a little girl in this barrel and he's like training her to have like these fast reflexes and that's very similar to the the goofy training character in kill bill volume two um but at this point since i'm kind of coming into this very fresh um i'll let someone that might be a little bit more knowledgeable in all this uh have his take on um these two films joey uh take it away all right so um i i got a, a good bit of stuff here for this, so the the quote um, from the the origin of Ovrin, um, which is the anime sequence, is her quote is "Look at me, Masamoto. Take a good look at my face. Look at my eyes. Look at my mouth. Do I look familiar? Do I look like somebody you murdered?" That is Ovrin as a child. That's her quote. The quote that Yuki uses um, in Lady Snowblood, and that is Lady Snowblood. That is Yuki. Is Take a good look at my face. Doesn't it resemble that of the woman you tortured? Um, but so when I watched Lady Snowblood last year for the first time, I, I watched it and then I watched Kill Bill. I didn't watch them back to back. I watched them back to back. And then I also watched Kill Bill and Kill Bill 2 last night. So I watched Kill Bill like two days apart from one another because one of my friends, she had never seen either movie. And so I just rewatched them um, really close to one another. So there are a ridiculous amount of um, similarities. So yes, like you said, there's um, the scene of the, the the people who are getting the revenge, you know, the revenge done to them. Um, there's actually uh, like a 15 second video I shared with you on YouTube um, mm -hmm. that we can either put in the comment section or I can put in my review on Letterboxd. So you know you can mm -hmm. kind of see that. Um, but there's there's a lot. There's a lot of similarities in besides that. So Oren Ishii is definitely based off of Yuki, as is Beatrix Kiddo. Um, uh -huh. they're, they're both very much based off of off of Yuki, um, even to the point of so Beatrix Kiddo, she gets pregnant and is beat the hell up, shot in the head, left for dead. Her baby is dead. She comes for revenge. Yuki's mother is has her her child killed, her husband killed. She goes for revenge, gets put in prison, and dies during labor, labor having Yuki and makes her an Asura demon and sets her on the path of revenge. So um, very similar, just changed up a little bit. And then of course Orin watches both of her parents be murdered and goes on revenge. So those two characters, you know, they're the big end sequence for Kill Bill 1, set on a path together. 
And then you have Bonzo, who is the, the father that you were talking about, the drunk. He has his daughter. Um, he was the, who she was prostituting to help pay for his medicine and his alcohol and, and what have you. Mm-hmm. So she, at the end of, of Lady Snowblood, um, after Yuki has her big fight and everything and has been shot and is walking away, she comes up and stabs Lady Snowblood. And this is all off of something that Quentin Tarantino said. Quentin Tarantino had said that there was going to be a sequel to Kill Bill that never came to fruition, which was going to be um, where we're going to, we're going to talk. And this comes back to Zatoichi. Um, so in the first Kill Bill, when Beatrix kills um, uh, Renita Green, she kills okay. Renita Green, and um, Nikki, which is her daughter, comes in and she tells her, "Grow up, and you're still sore about it. I'll be here waiting." Mm-hmm. Then we're gonna. So she leaves that. She leaves her daughter there. So so now you know you have two daughters in um, Bonzo's daughter and Renita Green's daughter. They have seen their their parent get revenged by the uh, by the main character. So one obviously just runs up and stabs the other one. So the other one is a child. Um, so you have L Driver in Kill Bill 2. She's never killed. And they confirm that at the end of Kill Bill 2. It shows everybody else's name crossed off, but it leaves her name with a question mark. And well, now that she is blind with no eyes, as um, Beatrix rips her eye out very much like Paime did, um, the idea was that she was going to be like a Zaitoichi character where she was a blind samurai, except for an evil blind samurai, and then kind of takes the Paime role and trains Nakia or Nikki um, to get her revenge. And so that was even going to parallel, she was going to take that role of Manzo's daughter except for, you know, instead of just stabbing her, it was going to be into another movie. So there were all sorts of parallels that were going to run into there. Um, it was it was crazy the the level that he put into this and how much he was influenced by this movie and then tons of other influences and you know one wolf and cub like we talked about um as well um there was also the sound effects every time they were you know they would jump and that kind of stuff they had the sound effects in both lady snowblood and in that scene where uh beatrix is fighting gogo there was the jumping sounds and then like the bowling sounds when they would knock the tables and stuff out mm-hmm. and then there's then of course there's the other like crazy big one which is the um flower of carnage uh shura nohana song which um was in both movies and was okay. also sung sung by mako kaji which is yeah. yuki yeah i didn't realize uh lady snowblood was actually like a lot of these these samurai movies I've watched have been a little bit earlier, so it was kind of neat to hear that funk element in Lady Snowblood. And um... yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, they use the, like that funk style music in a lot of kung fu movies. Um, if, if they're not using like rap music, which I think is more in the more recent kung fu movies, but in the seventies, they definitely use the funk music um, that they use there. But um... Another another big line was that you know Kill Bill, uh, Beatrix says the says this three times that you and I have unfinished business. Um, she says it to Bernita Green. Um, she uses a little bit more colorfully than that, and then of course she says it to Oren Ishii. And then at the end of Kill Bill Two, because of course obviously it was supposed to be one movie, it wasn't supposed to be two. Um, she says it to Bill. Um, and at least one time um, in. Lady Snowblood, Yuki says, "You and I 
have unfinished business. So, so again, the first the first time you saw Snowblood, um, did you have any trouble with uh, following the plot at all? Um, am I? Um, I don't really remember ever having any trouble following the plot. Um, I mean, I could have, but I, I don't remember it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it you just, seem to I, know it pretty back and forth now, especially with being able to pick out just hyper uh, details of each story. So <laughs> definitely you I mean, know I, it. I, I spent a lot of time today for this one. Right. Like, I have all of, I, I wrote all of this down. Um, but gotcha. I don't, I don't remember being confused by the story, but I mean, it's easy, I guess, like if you know, if you look down to do something or you had to pause it and start it back or, you know, you know mm-hmm. something of that nature, um, to, to, you know, have missed something. Um, and I remember listening to this one analysis where like he was talking a lot about like facial gestures and a lot of times it's hard to catch some of that stuff on a first watch when you, you know, you're, you got your, you're reading the subtitles and uh, you know, you can easily miss uh, elements like that. So I think overall, yeah, I really enjoyed um, the overall package of Snowblood with like the really cool violence and over the top stuff. Um, the whole <laughs> the whole disguise part towards the end that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I definitely wouldn't have envisioned her like um, going to like this masquerade ball thing at the end. Um, so what's your take? So I guess technically at the end of Snowblood she dies. I mean, it definitely looks like she dies, and um, I did not watch Lady Snowblood 2. Um, I had intended to, but, you know, I had friends come over, and we watched some other stuff, some 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 garbage um, instead. <laughs> um, so I didn't get to watch that. So, but, I mean, it definitely looks like she died. I mean, even to the point that, um, like, in that... 15 second video it shows Oren. Oren's death sequence is uh, very similar to the end of that movie but I mean like we talked, uh, me and my roommate talked about she's like a superhero, I mean this is whatever she died, no one cares, she came back to life screw okay. it <laughs> I mean I guess, I don't know but um, okay. but yeah you're talking about facial facial stuff so um, you know in, in Kill Bill they did this they did it with Oren. They did it with Beatrix a bunch. Um, and I, I mean, I think they did it with some other people. They definitely did it with, oh, they did it with Bill. Um, they, they focused, they zoomed in on their eyes, just like where they framed just their eyes a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. And they, they did that also in that movie. They really focused on their eyes a lot in, in Snowblood. Not, not as much, I guess, um, like, to where it was just on the eyes, but they would they would come up above like the nose. There was no mouth, but it wasn't just that frame. Um, okay. You know, it was a little bit of stylistically difference, but it was that was a thing like that I, I definitely noticed. Um, I was like, oh, they're, they're zooming in on their eyes, and then I you know I watched Kill Bill, and I was like, oh my god, like I mean, I was into the joke of you know Kill Bill is the American remake, like. like he just you I mean it was just you know, shots music. Mm-hmm. lines um it was, it was just so much influence i mean and, and there was so many other influences too like i mean gone in 60 seconds like there's no car there was no car scene in there but you know the, mm-hmm. the scene where the, the sheriff's coming up and there's sunglasses littered like across the sheriff's thing um there i forgot which one it is but there's a western and in kill bill 2 where um, Uma Thurman's standing up against the door of the church. It's straight out of this Western. Like, 
just so many influences, but like Snowblood is this like clear one. Even you know the the house of that house of green leaves, blue leaves, house of blue leaves. You know that that scene at the end with all the snow and you know and the kimono and the and the sword fight. Like we just like obviously that's that was the first thing you know okay. when you when you see it. So um, so like I said, I enjoyed it. Um, and I was. Like towards the end of it, you know, I was getting a little tired. It was getting a little late, and I was like, "Oh, well, I'll try to watch as much of um, Kill Bill as I can." And it's been a while since I revisited Kill Bill, and wow, like my attention like snapped up into like high gear. And this was by far like the most fun I've ever had watching Kill Bill. Like all this, like this might be Tarantino's most stylistic film. I just want to gush about Kill Bill for a few minutes. Like, okay, so this soundtrack is like might be one of the best movie soundtracks of all time there is so much great music in this um i mean the slow like guitar things during like the um the the um the the title screens when she actually gets to japan and you hear flight of the bumblebee and like the something against humanity is the the when the the gang is walking out, there's just so much great music in in that movie that gets you so pumped up. Um, I've seen a few De Palma films in the last year or so since I've got more into the Criterion Collection, and I'm not sure how familiar with De Palma you are, but he loves to do these split screens to do his horror movies, and the whole like split screen whenever she's in the hospital and the uh, the nurse um, assassin is like coming after her is like straight out of a De Palma flick. And I was thinking, man, I wish Tarantino would direct a, a freaking horror movie. But this little segment here is the closest he's ever come to doing a horror movie with that suspense of her coming in and being like a, a killer in the night and, and taking her out. But no, Bill calls her up and says, no, we can't do that to her as much as she deserves it or we deserve it back on us. Um, so all that was really great. Um, just a blast. I mean... <laughs> the crazy 88 fight at the end like it just goes by so fast and by the time you're done watching it you're like i just want to watch it again so i can pick up on even more of it um wow and at the end of it i was like man i guess you could kind of consider reservoir dogs as being that tarantino flick that might end up being the criterion one day but i kind of wish it was kill bill just because of how stylistic it is and you know the criterion loves their um their japanese influences and i would love to see like a whole bloody affair criterion disc one day that'd be pretty awesome oh my god i would buy the living shit out of that in an instant but i feel like with miramax and whoever miramax is you know rights and stuff that would probably never happen but oh my god i would i, I would even wait for a sale i'm not even gonna front I would I would be like banging on the doors of Barnes and Noble like give me this. Mm -hmm. Order it on Amazon, get a decent price that way. I mean that's true, but like I, I don't know, I'm weird. I like I I I'm not I like going to the stores. I mean not not that I okay. don't buy. I buy I buy plenty of stuff off of Amazon and like I mentioned Zavi earlier and you know I've got Shout Factory up there and you know different stuff. Um, but there's just something. I don't know. There's something about finding stuff off and on shelves and stuff. I'm, you know, I'm mm -hmm. we're in our thirties. You know, it's part of you know how life used to be for us. You know, it's different. Yeah. You know, for people then. But you know, it's just like I found. Uh, you know, I sent you a picture. I found uh, the red shoes 
uh, Criterion DVD for a dollar. You know, I found it. Mm -hmm. you know, it was at a pawn shop, but there's something about it. I was just looking through all the movies and the excitement of finding that one. Yeah, and, and pulling it off the shelf. So, I definitely had that experience. I was at a at a used bookstore and I found the steel book for a Django, and it was like it was like definitely an older steel book and it was in decent shape. And so that was that was a cool find. So I can definitely give. I can picking down what you're throwing down there, man. Um, yeah, I'll just close on the fact that the, I mean, Kill Bill is like especially Volume One. I mean, I really need to watch Volume Two again. I'll probably do that in the next couple of days just to kind of seal the story for me but it's like a comic book come to life it's just so visually um you know flashy and in the best ways for me um it's kind of funny i mean it's such a visually stunning film but then when they actually do go to the anime sequences it's so loose and sketchy and stuff it still looks great i mean it's weird like with the the anime stuff of how I, I think it it's kind of a tribute to that style of anime of it not looking exactly perfect but it still works so great in the film oh yeah no that that animated scene was was fantastic like I don't like like a lot of anime but that mm -hmm. that scene was fantastic um so I, the only thing we were talking about is like, you know, she gets revenge on Masamoto, but it never shows her getting revenge on the long-haired guy, the guy who actually stabbed her father and, you know, is the badass who shoots the liquor and kicks the kicks the cigar and starts the fire. It's like, where was, where was, her, where was his comeuppance, oh, you know? Yeah. But, forgot about him. Yeah, like, you know, you know... Oh, you oh, know that's, that, oh that's, that's in Kill Bill, right? It, yeah, in Kill Bill. Okay. So... Any uh, final thoughts on? I mean, you you definitely nailed like the comparisons, but on their own, any uh, final thoughts on each one? All right. Well, I mean, obviously, we we talked about it when we did the when we did the Tarantino that you know Kill Bill is my favorite. It's not just my favorite Tarantino movie; it's my favorite movie. I mean, clearly, I think anybody who knows me knows that. So, I mean, obviously, five stars still um for that. Uh, Lady Snowblood. I, I feel like if if you like samurai style movies or revenge movies, um, it's his influence not only like extends there, um, it, it, it extends further. If anybody's familiar with Old Boy and its trilogy, even though it's not a real like trilogy and like three movies that stick to one thing, it also um, I saw when doing research for some of the stuff today. Like there's a movie called Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, which is part of that trilogy, which um, is also heavily influenced. I have not seen it yet. Um, hopefully. At the end of next month, I will have seen it because I'm getting the Arrow release of Old Boy, which will have all three movies in it. Um, but like, it's just it's one of those movies. You know, obviously, it's not it's not Casablanca, it's not Seven Samurai or anything like that. But it's it it has influenced a lot of those stylized vengeance style movies. On uh, if you like those style of movies and you haven't seen it, then definitely recommend picking it up it is on criterion like we talked about uh it and the sequel um and i definitely highly recommend watching it right on well said all right so the next challenge it's my turn to challenge you and so i'm i've always seen myself as a people pleaser so it's been really getting at me the fact that every time i recommend a movie to you you're not you're not really seeing eye to eye with it um so maybe i'm picking something that's a little bit more maybe possibly up your alley and might mess up your plan for 
these uh, sacred numbers of when you'll review stuff. Uh, but next time we are definitely going to talk about uh, Kuros Kurosawa's uh, Ran, uh, his masterpiece, his colorful epic that it's just stunning, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. Oh no, that that doesn't mess, mess up anything. Like I, uh, I've only seen four Kurosawa's. Um, I want to see more. I want to own. Right now, I don't own any, um, despite the fact that. Um, like Hidden Fortress was my was my one thousand. That was the and I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I loved it in Seven Samurai. I, I want to see more, so I'm I'm a, I'm about that. So I'm I'm on board with that. Awesome. All right. What's our uh, our next feature uh, movie club film? Um. Well, especially now that you have picked that, I uh, was looking through the movies and I saw one that, that really stuck out to me, but. I kind of wanted to steer us away of us talking about a bunch of samurai movies or samurai style movies for a while. So I stuck away from that one. We'll come back to that one. Um, okay. We're going to go with um, The White Ribbon. Okay. A Haneke film. Have you yeah. seen any Haneke? Not that I'm aware of, but we can click on this button and find out. <laughs> <laughs> um, that button's not, but, they don't have a letterbox button for that, do they? Are you just going to yes, look through his... click on his... I mean, it'll oh, say, it tells me I've watched 0 of 26. Oh, oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, he's, um, so he's like, I think he's an Austrian director, and he's really perverse. He does very stylistic films that really kind of, um, try to get under your skin. So, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, definitely looking forward to seeing another Haneke film. Um, I've seen a couple, so, uh. Yeah, I, I'm going into this one blind, so it'll be interesting to hear both of our thoughts on uh, a perverse film like that. Interesting. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, everyone that follows the show. And if you want to join the club, make sure to hit subscribe and hit that uh, bell notification. That'll alert you whenever our episodes go up live. And we'd love to hear feedback and questions from you guys. Any way you can give it to us, but uh, what's that main way they can send us uh, those questions, Joey? That is going to be uh, the Average Joe's Movie Clubcast at gmail.com. All right, everyone. Happy movie watching. Skull. All right, and before I sign off, I'm, I'm just going to say that uh, hopefully the uh, next time that you're looking for us on YouTube, we are hopefully going to have um, our long-awaited logo. Um, it's from a right. close personal... A uh, close personal friend of mine. I'm just gonna we'll, we'll shout him out again. But I'm gonna go ahead and shout him out right now. Um, is uh, you can basically find him on every form of social media under um, Zombie Ernie. Um, so go look his stuff up. Um, if you're in the southeast region of the United States, he pretty much does a lot of cons. You've seen probably seen some of his comic book stuff. So hopefully you'll. Uh, see some of his stuff but hopefully we'll have that and uh you'll you'll recognize this more than just as a, a thing of popcorn in a movie reel and that'll be really cool and i'm pretty excited for that um awesome look forward to it yeah yes and with that uh thank you guys so much and y'all have a good evening